0: At the time of recording, in January last year, Jack was the manager of Marimba, a 20,000 hectare sheep and cropping property between Warren and Quambone. And as you'll hear, the drought had definitely not broken out there at that stage. In this episode, you'll hear Jack's thoughts about coping with drought, both in terms of handling the livestock, but also how experiencing drought has shaped his own and his team's outlook on farming. You'll also hear how Jack places heavy emphasis on individual animal performance, which is no mean feat when you're running 10,000 breeding ewes, and how the delicate art of timing when making changes can influence the outcome. One of the most substantial, but ultimately sound changes Jack made at Marimba was to implement containment feeding for the entire flock. Local Land Services District Vet, Jill Kelly, caught up with Jack. On the back veranda at Marimba on another hot, dry, dusty day back in early 2020.
1: So, welcome to today's podcast. We're sitting Thanks here with Jack me. Brennan, manager at Marimba. Can mm-hmm. you give us a bit of a rundown on Marimba as a property?
2: 20,000 hectares, it's 70 k's northeast of Warren, nearly smack bang between Warren and Canamble. It's made up now of about five and a half thousand hectares of cropping country, and in normal seasons, runs about 10,000 breeding ewes at the moment. We were only joined 5,600 this year. It's a merino enterprise. We used to use some Dorset rams pre drought over some older sheep, but they've sort of come by the wayside too. So we're just 100% merino. Yeah, it's made up of myself and two full time staff.
1: And it's a corporate, it's owned by Paraway Pastoral. Yep. Yep. I know that there's a lot of sort of stigma or a lot of chat out there about, you know, being a corporate farmer, but tell me what being a corporate farmer means to you and and you've come from a family farm. Tell me about the differences, the benefits, the
2: downsides. Tell me about that. How long you got? (laughs) I think that there's obviously pros and cons in everything and and my father had a saying you can't get something without giving something up. I guess when you come from a family farm in operation, you get the best of both worlds because you get to bring that family farming mentality to a corporate system that brings all of the benefits that is scale, I guess. So the differences, I guess, are it's it's 100% business focused. We try and keep it unemotional because we feel like emotion or paraways is sort of committed to this idea that emotion is often the blockage to good decision and good business decisions. Of course, that's a double-edged sword in its own right because I feel like To have enough get out of bed and go in you to succeed at scale in these environments, you need to have a heap of skin in the game. You need to be so passionate. So you sort of can't have one without the other. I don't think they're exclusive. But I think it's just about being able to balance the emotional connection and and being able to make decisions based on good and timely data, I suppose. The corporate has just offered a huge amount of support in that I have a business analyst that, I can just phone or text or email and if you have an idea within 24 hours I can have it pulled apart, teased out, financially assessed and a heap of information flow. Maybe some searches on you know papers written about this and whether it succeeds in these environments and whatever else. So a huge amount of support both emotionally and business alike
1: and I guess that's been really important, particularly over the last three years, because I think that you probably live, Marimba is situated on the driest patch of this continent. It really hasn't rained here for three years. Tell me about how this drought's affected you and your business decisions and the enterprise.
2: Yes, I'm really conscious of that because I, I worry about, certainly I have an employee that started last year, and he's a great young fellow, I worry about how these events affect your mentality for the rest of your life. It's like being, my best analogy, I was talking to my wife the other night, it's the best analogy I can come up with, is if you grew up in the Depression, you will spend, after the Depression ended, those people spend the next 70 years of their life living as frugally as they possibly could. And so I think that you have to be fully aware that every time you have a drought event, if it's a bad outcome, it has a lasting effect on your, on your mind and your decision-making process and probably your fear of it being around the corner and it it restricts you. So I think that the beauty of what Paraway has offered, and I think this was your question, is that it just allows you the freedom of, number one, an escape from a lack of financial stress. So it's actually not a complete escape. I'd be lying if I I said, I've been through this drought, stress-free, I haven't. I've had a number of sleepless nights, but not nearly as many as I did when I was running my own operation. And then balance sheet that's supported by other enterprises all across the country that allow you to think, okay, well, the company's big. We're making some good dollars in some other areas. It allows me the freedom to just say, okay, I'm not going to be a big black hole, but I've got some strength to be able to keep some skin in the game and maybe make a commitment to holding some wild stock and locking them up and feeding them properly and doing those sorts of things. I guess having this support behind you of people telling you you're doing a good job and people uh, liking how you're approaching it and people inspiring you to continue to do what you're doing. I don't think you get that in a family farm. Like You have maybe mum, dad and two sons or daughters or however it's structured. And It's the the diversity of people that look at things from all different perspectives in different roles in the corporate that allows that openness and that open mindset that I sort of I'm really attracted to that just allows you to continue to be inspired and and dwell on the wins, I think. Like the wins are small and few and far between in droughts. And so, you know, when you get them to have people call you up and say, how bloody good was that? You can dine out on that for probably three months until the next one comes along. Like, and So I think that's, that's the power of the corporate and how it's changed how I think. I think it's made me aggressive too. Like yeah. I think that it's a bit more like... Aggressive enough to know that if you've got the right support behind you, you're doing the right analysis and you've got power behind your decision making processes, some of them will be wrong. There's nothing shorter. And some of them will be right. But everyone's a lesson, so you just continue to be progressive through a drought rather than just you know, we try and shut it down financially and we don't want to like say be a big black hole and a drag on the rest of the company because it just won't rain here. But You also have to keep your mind open while still trying to rein it in. So tighten your belt, but sort of pull your sneakers on at the same time, for want of a better analogy.
1: And so I suppose to get a bit more specific about how you actually did handle the drought, tell me about some of the progression that you made and the decisions that you made and how your enterprise went from running 10,000 merino ewes over 20,000 hectares into what's happening out here today.
2: Yeah, so obviously droughts don't sneak up on you. They're, they're slow and progressive, typically. I mean, it, it, for us, the tap turned off, but we still had seven months worth of grass in us without compromising the sort of ground cover and the soil structure so much. Saw so we had seven months worth of grass, so we started feeding at five months in to try and extend that period, and we thought, well, if we can push it through to the next change in the season, we'd probably get a rain. Anyway, that didn't happen, and we know all of that in hindsight, but I guess what we did was make it, early decisions to, number one, invest in our country. I think we put some actual financial figures around that. I did quite a bit of work on how much ground cover actually costs you to take it off when you actually get a rain event because of the lack of response. So we locked them up. We let them out to join. Probably, Well, absolutely a mistake in hindsight. We probably should have just fed them through confinement because we still fed them in the paddy. But we had had a, bit, a little bit of rain, so we thought we needed some grass in the system to ensure a joining. And then, yeah, we realised that that was a mistake and we sent someone an adjustment, we tried to find homes for them and we sold too. We just keep looking at what is the most overvalued animal in our system and we pull her out and we sell her. Um, we also have that great benefit of having all this data that we've collected on our breeders so we have an ability to distinguish who are the high performers either in an age group or across certain sections of, of the breeding group so we can identify the sheep that have not contributed as much. We've just sort of really quite quickly, I think by the start of 18 had really locked them up. We sacrificed some country at the start and then we just were seeing the really obvious things that all the literature tells you about, but of course you have gotta go and test yourself and stuff it up. Like, you know, the couple of free megs you get if you actually put them in a pen as opposed to run them in a paddock, stop them walking. So we just slowly progressed, built more pens, And just got really uh, very accurate at feeding. Like at the start we probably were playing around a bit and guesstimating a fair bit and, you know, where they're over-heavy and then they're underdone, and and, you know, your timing's all over the shop and I think something they've learnt. Like sheep are creatures of habit, so keep it the same, keep it consistent and get it right and you'll get a result. Yeah, so now just everything's weighed. We didn't spend a lot of money to try and do it. Like we've got little sets of cattle scales on the backs of utes that weigh out grain and things like that. And it just got better and more accurate and more defined and smaller mobs and broke them down and weighed them more and split them up into smaller weight categories and just kept chewing off the edges. And the the really exciting thing about it all is we're getting really predictable results. And so you're planning beyond the next step is, um, I mean, you always shit yourself that it's going to be a complete failure. So far, the results have been really predictable. So, you know, you feed them right and you get them in the right condition score and you put the right number of rams in they've been checked and everything and all of a sudden, you know, you get 90, 95% of them in lamb. Like, it's good.
1: I think a real win that you've had that I've seen over the last few years is your weaning successes. So tell me how you varied weaning from, say, well, pre-drought and pre-locking mm. them up versus year one in drought and then versus year two because I think there's been a dramatic improvement.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, you shouldn't say when in successes. There's been a, a number of failures that have borne change and innovation, I think. And that's probably as important as the outcomes once you've made the mistakes. People often wanna just talk about the outcome and how good they are now, but I think it's more important that we talked about what we stuffed up. And look, the old process was very much just put two mobs together, bring them in, pull the lambs off, vaccinate the lambs, weigh them. And split them up probably three ways onto a couple of loosened blocks or something, and see you later. Good luck. I remember when I first started doing that, I was just blown away on the, on the farm of this scale that we'd muster them and there'd be like three or four percent missing, and sometimes five or six, and like no, nah, they're out there. Go and do another muster, but guess what? They never end up because <laughs> they were dead. And so you know that that the ball had started rolling before the drought that we knew that there was a process issue or maybe. Lots of issues, weaning weight issues, probably some genetic issues, or definitely some genetic issues, and whatever else. But what the what the drought has done is fast tracked us to have to get that right and get it better. Um, we haven't got it perfect, but yeah, year one it was a very similar process to a paddock wean situation, but they went into a feedlot confined pen situation. We had troubles with acidosis, and we had too many in a pen and it was a tear-your-hair-out job. The lambs were too light. We weaned them very light. The lambs were fed probably in utero, but probably not post. You know, we thought we were doing the right thing, but we were also trying to save a lot of dollars. And what it ended up is costing us heaps. So we had high mortality. Yeah, and now look, we got an outcome eventually. You, you push through it and you look back on that two months and never want to go through it again. So that inspires you to go and fix something. And then, yeah, I think we also were convinced that stress was playing a huge role in, in that weaning process. I mean, we've all done the low stress stock handling courses and the grazing for profit courses that tell you that, but there's never actually been any significant scientific data to back it up, certainly not in sheep. There's a lot of, around cattle. I've always believed it in cattle. I think if I can just indulge for a second that the, the problem with it was always that they would look at sheep responses to stress as in behaviour post the event. And often the behaviour is exactly normal, within minutes or hours. And so that was their precursor to say, well, there's no stress there. But what we've discovered with great research by people we know recently is that it's a hormone release issue that then some research I've seen recently says that post the shearing event, a ewe is still running high on adrenaline-type hormones that are affecting her feed conversion 11 weeks post the shearing event. If that's not an indicator that stress is causing issues, I don't know what is. The process this year was to be as low stress as we possibly could. We did not mark the lambs before we weaned them. We didn't mark them. We left them on their mums. We fed them properly. We had them in and out of the yards, banged up there at one stage, but in most cases in three hours. There was no needles. They weren't weighed. They were drafted on eye, put in a pen. We used a few products to try and calm them down. Whether they worked or not, I still don't know. But And yeah, and then we fed them. We just put grain in front of them. And we had them well-trained on grain. And we just saw amazing turnarounds, very, very low mortality at six weeks post-weaning. May have been 0.1 of 1% mortality post-weaning. Unbelievable growth rates, which you do see. There's a lot of compensatory growth there to be done, but to be had. And we saw better growth rates. We also saw much higher weaning weights. And yeah, it was just, it's been a really good outcome. So at this point right now, um, we actually weighed some lambs this morning, and I think our sheep today are about 16 kilos heavier today than they were at this point last year.
1: That's
2: amazing. We didn't have a sheep ready to kill last year until the end of March, and we weighed some lambs this morning, they averaged 57 kilos, which means that they're probably, I mean, they're ewe lambs, so we're not going to kill them, but they probably would have been ready to kill three or four weeks ago. Mm. Fantastic.
1: Unbelievable. So you've made the tough decision to reduce your flock numbers, to reduce your breeding ewe numbers, and you've mentioned that you did that based on data gathering and working out which ewes were underperforming. Can you talk to me how exactly you do that?
2: Yeah, so when the ewes are made and we just collect five pieces of fleece information, um, also whether that lamb was born as a scanned twin or a single, and then we collect four weights up until yielding weight and we look at growth. And then we actually feed all of that information into an economic index and the ewes then get ranked in their contemporary group. And then that's, that's how it works. So, you know, you can go in and just draw the line wherever you like. They go over an auto-drafter, they've got an AID tag in their ear. That economic index can vary in some years. The, the importance of using it amongst their contemporaries, like in an age group, is that, of course, seasonality has a huge impact across age groups. You have to be very careful how you use raw data to select animals. But when we account for all of those factors that we can understand, being twin or single and, you know, where they were born, whether they were born out of a maiden and all sorts of things, and we adjust for that and then rank them, we feel like we're getting... It's not perfect. If I had to take a number, I'd say we're 85% accurate on being able to identify where the best performing sheep are on the farm and where the lower performing sheep are. Now, of course, we take the culls out. So when I say lower performing, in some years, the variation can only be, I think, one year, 2014, it might have been $6 across every animal in that age group. And then you get really good years like 2018 where I think the variation was something like $70 across the age group. Mm. And, yeah, again... You would have to wonder how much the environment's influencing that but the fact still remains is that they're all only con- compared against their contemporaries and then yeah we just draw a line and say okay it's going to cost us let's take a number 56 dollars to feed a ewe for the next seven months to get us through to the next decision point which would most likely be scanning let's say and then we'll make a decision then on what gets sold if it hasn't rained and any you that does not produce 56 dollars in fleece income between now and then doesn't get a start so I'm pretty confident that 85% of the sheep that stay are going to cover the cost of us doing that. So it's a net-net. And if you can come out break-even in a drought year, I think you're going all right. And that's that's always been our mantra that we need to, at the very lowest, break-even in a drought year, and then when we get a crack at it, you know, you need to hit it out of the park and average it out and you become, over a five- or ten-year period, a profitable farm.
1: And so speaking of that, hitting it out of the park, the day that it rains, what are you just itching to sink your teeth into out here? What's going to be... Some of the
2: things you do. I feel like we're pretty well prepared in that all of our cropping country, at least, is ready to go. But for us, it's going to be getting better at growing better pasture, more pasture on less rain. So you know, we've always um, looked at this as a as a grass growing business, and the animals come to utilise the grass. I know that sounds like a bit of a cliche. You hear people say that, but I think it's a really a really good point that you've got an asset. The asset is is a bucket. And I think you actually have the ability to put some hungry boards on that bucket and fill it up a bit more. And I don't think we've been particularly good at it. I mean, we spend a lot of time on genetics and not enough time making sure that those genetics get expressed. And the way you do that is make sure that the nutrition's never compromised. And that's another great lesson from the drought. When you feed a sheep accurately and directly and never let them have a check, then you have lifetime productivity, I believe, out of those animals and phenomenal individual production outcomes. So it'll be growing grass and we, we, we're a loosened base pasture system and it's all dead. So getting that right, it's, go, it's going to be hairy because I don't want to go back in and plant the whole loosened base again in one year. It sort of stuffs up our rotation and stuff. So how do we fill the gaps economically, fill the gaps in pasture growth to get our stocking rates back up and make sure we don't compromise individual animal performance? And that's a hard balance to strike, but I think that's going to be the, the exciting challenge of post-drought is... How do we actually make this better than it was before and more accurate and more direct and, and get better outcomes?
1: Well, here's to rain soon. He's hoping. What's the best thing you've read or listened to lately?
2: I've read a couple of great things and I've listened to a couple of great things, actually. I listened to the Dolly Parton podcast.
1: Yes. Dolly Parton's America.
2: Yeah. Just loved it because I think we're just constantly at the moment bombarded by all of the hatred and the political divide and the wars and i don't know the climate change everything's so negative and then you i just found out i got sent it by my brother-in-law and i listened to it i was just inspired by a woman that for me has really gone under the radar apart from the fact that i know she's an amazing talent i think it's because of the person she actually is
1: the dolly philosophy yeah yeah if you could be anyone for a day who would you be
2: oh well probably my wife (laughs)
1: <laughs> she is awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, she is, but I think that um, in all seriousness, the reason I say that is because I'm just in awe of her ability to the, the way she thinks about things and the way she sees the world and people and where she fits. And I just think her complete contentment in everything. You know, there's just no bitterness or jealousy or
1: that. That's lovely. Any of that. What's a sure sign that it's going to rain?
2: I, I used to think I knew when you walk out your door and your rain gauge is full that's usually a pretty good indication and that's the only one i can possibly come up with because what i've learned in the last three years that echidnas are full of shit black cockatoos are liars echidnas walking doesn't mean anything turtles it's all bullshit ants build their nests when they think it's going to rain but they're about as accurate as the weatherman so i used to actually think that the change in the leaf like the rosewoods drop their leaf and then they get fresh fresh growth on them. It used to be a really good indicator, but now that I think about it, they told me that often in really wet years, so the weatherman was getting it right then too. So I don't really have an answer for that, only that you need to um, keep planning for it not to rain and make sure you're good enough to be ready when it does, I suppose.
1: Thanks very much for your time
0: today, Jack. Thanks for having me at Roomba.
2: No worries, Jill. Thanks for your um, curly questions.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Nerily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.